We are back. What is up? Isn't fall the best time of the year? I feel so basic saying that, but it's true. Great workout weather. You know, the temps just get a little colder. My Northern European roots kick in and suddenly the, I'm trying to think of how to say this word, the lethargy, is that it? You know, like lethargic, the lethargy of summer. I was trying to create a cool phrase there, is gone. And I just want to start ripping off mile repeats in long tempos, seemingly out of nowhere. It's nice. Yeah. I've just been feeling it the last couple of weeks. How about you? I realize that is a rhetorical question, but uh, okay. Random tangent over. Let's get to the show. Sorry. I'm just stoked right now. In this episode, we talk with the founder of Tracksmith, Matt Taylor. For those not familiar, Tracksmith is a running brand based out of Boston, Massachusetts that serves the quote unquote dedicated amateur runner, a phrase that definitely caught my attention and a persona that we talk a lot about in this episode. I have been fascinated by Tracksmith for a while because they are a great case study in brand building and they're just a cool uh, out post in the running community. I don't know how to say it otherwise. Uh, So we go deep on that subject. We talk about differentiation, community building, their approach to athlete sponsorship and other models in the industry. Matt talks about lessons learned in entrepreneurship and running trends he's noticing. The topic of growing the sport of running comes up again. Matt is a great entrepreneur. He's a great brand marketer. And as I learned in this conversation, a great commentator on our sport. I really think you will enjoy this one. Let's get right into it. Matt Taylor, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So this podcast is mostly going out to a trail running audience. And I do think at this point, Tracksmith has built up quite a bit of name recognition across the running community. But for those in the trail running contingent that might not be familiar, could you just give a little bit of an intro to uh, what Tracksmith is all about? Sure. Tracksmith is an independent running brand. We're, We're based in Boston and we are rooted in a deep love uh, for the sport. The opportunity, I think, that um, that we identified is, you know, th- there has been sort of this, I'd say, like, rush to the extremes of our sports, sort of on one end, like, elite performance, and then on the other end, sort of a more general fitness and athleisure um, sort of approach. And in the middle, the core of the sport, we felt like was being taken for granted. So we just wanted to build a brand for sort of that subculture of competitive but non-professional runners. And so everything we do sort of comes from that point and sort of caters to that, that lifestyle. And it's been seven years. And although that seven years sometimes feels like it's gone by in a heartbeat and other times it feels like 20 years, uh, we do feel like we're, we're starting to hit our stride a little bit. Can you talk more a bit about that sort of race to the extremes for brands that already exist in the industry? Yeah. So what's, I think unique is, is this is purely from like a, let's call it like a, a positioning or communication standpoint. There's, there's sort of a barbell shape to running where um, a lot of brands are using sort of, let's say very elite sort of, you know, Olympic medalists um, and those stories 
at sort of the one end to um, prove authenticity and, and credibility and also show their credentials, um, but also have sort of gone to the other end of the barbell where there is just a larger market opportunity. There are way more people who just run or jog than mm. there are people who train to race and and sort of, you know, are have a have a more competitive mindset. And so in the middle of that barbell is is a huge group of people who um, you know, sort of and, and I was one of those people, um, you know, as my sort of running and and career progressed where it didn't feel like um, you know, any of the brand was sort of speaking speaking to me as a as a customer or or said another way that I really identified with the core of any of the brands. And so that's sort of where Tracksmith was 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 created. Mm. Can you talk more also about this persona, this dedicated amateur runner? It resonates a lot with me. You know, I'm somebody who, um, I'm not a pro, I'm not elite, but I have oriented virtually every single area of my life around the sport because I love it. And I'm wondering if you can tell the audience what it means to be a dedicated amateur runner and what their day-to-day looks like and how you've built the brand around that. Yeah, I, you you really hit on the core of it for for me, which as human beings we all choose things that are important to us, and we prioritize them in different ways. And if running is something that you are starting to orient your your life around, then it's clearly in your top few things that are important to you. They could be important to you for different reasons. That part of it is is sort of irrelevant. It could be health reasons. It could be sort of personal aspirations. It could be, you know, some other sort of external or internal factor. But when you, when you cross that threshold of running is just sort of inactivity and I'm not really that concerned about it or when I do it or where I do it to, this is part of my lifestyle. And I'm going to start thinking about, you know, my day around the run or the workout that I need to do, there is a, there is like a fundamental shift that happens in a, just from a purely uh, consumer behavior perspective where you're open all of a sudden to a lot, to a lot more things. And and that aperture gets really interesting when you're thinking about what you're eating, when you're thinking about the clothes you're wearing, when you're thinking about what event you're going to run, what technology you're using and, and all of those things that come with it. And so to us, it really is like a, it is a psychographic profile of, of sort of making that shift where running becomes a really important part of your, your lifestyle and your identity. I really like that phrase, psychographic profile as well. The, the follow-up here that I've, I want to ask is, I'm wondering if there's any sort of implicit challenge in your branding and your positioning here. Like when you're rallying around this dedicated amateur runner, are you making any additional statements about how people should live their lives? Can you talk about that as well? Yeah, I mean, yes, I think there is um, there, there is an, an, an implicit challenge or understanding. Maybe it's like this shared. I, we talk a lot about like the what's so powerful about racing specifically is not so much the race itself for the individual, although that's a really you know can be a really uh, rewarding and enriching journey that a that a person can go on. But it's also in running what's unique to our sport is the idea of like shared suffering. And I don't say that in like a, in like a gloomy way that like uh, it, was, it was painful, but, but it also is. But that energy that exists, like we just obviously came off the Boston and, and Chicago marathons and, and Boston specifically where we're based and at our, 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 um, our office and our, and our retail store and community hub. 
the energy after that race is so unique and it's true after any race, but we just get to experience it firsthand with you know, hundreds and hundreds of runners sort of pouring in there after the race and, and good or bad or average, you know, there's this idea that you can relate to the experience that someone else just had, regardless of how fast they, they ran or, or what their PRs are, or how they trained. There is this sort of um, shared experience. And that is, that is really, I think, really unique and um, and certainly like just the journey in general from deciding that you're, you know, going to start training and that you want to get faster, whether or not there's a race at the end of that. I just think running as a very powerful, um, can be a very powerful tool and and just sort of like human development. Um, and you experience a lot and, and you have a lot of time to think, and it's just a very, um, a very rewarding, um, activity in that way. Have you noticed, and I want to preface this question because I know that Tracksmith has done a ton to set up a really strong community vibe around the brand and like physical opportunities to build community with like the Tracksmith house and stuff. Are you seeing any cultural shifts right now that support all of those brand investments, like people wanting to train in groups and to run together and to kind of seek out community, especially post pandemic? Yeah. I I mean, a hundred percent. The idea of like running, you know, running clubs and teams, they've, they, they have sort of ebbed and flow, but I think certainly we have experienced over the last decade, a boom in team or or club or crew or group-based training, right? This sort of idea of uh, the loneliness of the long distance runner. I mean, it still exists and we still do a lot of our training by ourselves, a lot of us, but the idea that you can sort of come together and um, have people to to run with um, for a Tuesday interval workout at the track or to do your long run together on the weekend, there is sort of, you know, you're seeing a lot of that is great. And um, for anyone that, ran in high school or college, I think that's one of the biggest transitions to like post-collegiate running is sort of the lack of, of team. And so I think a lot of people are either sort of craving that after that experience or coming to the sport later in life and realizing that that team atmosphere can exist because of the rise and advent of more clubs and crews specifically in, you know, our, our larger cities. If you look at, you know, any of them, there's so many more uh, groups to join now than there were, you know, five and, and 10 years ago. And so, so yeah, I think you're seeing that. I think you're seeing also uh, what's helping that um, is the fact that now in the sort of global, global world that we live in, you know, it used to be that you didn't really travel beyond your local region to, um, to go to a race, you know, you, it, it was really unusual for someone in New York to hop on a plane and fly to Berlin to run the Berlin Marathon. But now the amount of people that are traveling internationally for major, major events, um, whether they're, you know, marathons or even ultras um, to an extent, um, has changed completely. And so you combine that, you combine that with social media and Strava and sort of all of a sudden the ability to connect with runners both locally and further away has been has been made a lot easier. And so, so yeah, we're definitely seeing that, um, that dynamic playing out. Yeah. Um, gosh, this, this makes it, I have so many different, uh, avenues I want to take this, but <laughs> one area that I want to drill in is 
with this realization that a lot of athletes have post high school, post college, when those group and team experiences are already taken care of for them. They're, they're built into that social experience. As soon as they leave that college environment in particular, a lot of those team opportunities are gone. And I know that Mark Ganey talks about this a lot with Strava where, um, you know, him and his co-founder, Michael Horvath, they were really trying to recreate this quote locker room experience post-college. And that's why they built Strava to stay in touch with fellow athletes. Um, I'm kind of rambling here, but I'm wondering if you see evidence of other similar community type platforms being built and whether there are going to be more opportunities for this sort of dedicated amateur runner to find community, to join teams, to join groups, both on the internet and in real life soon. Mm. Interesting. I, I, so maybe, I don't know if it'll be something new necessarily, or if it will be an evolution of what we're seeing of people come together. I think what would actually drive that is um, sort of events. So you are seeing like uh, like a little bit of a rise in sort of relay based races, right? Which are, which are team oriented, whether that's like the Ragnars or the hood to coast or speed project. Um, so if that continues to, to grow, but what I don't know is like, is that necessarily going to, going to mean a new sort of platform arises, or is it just going to be that people that are already part of a, a running club are, are saying, getting together and be like, Hey, let's go run this thing as a, as a team. And it just becomes sort of another experience that they can share within their community. Right. So that will be, yeah, I'd, I'd say interesting to see how that, um, how that evolves. And, and you see that a little bit in relay races. I could see, I'm hoping I'm bullish that sort of cross country in sort of a, you know, a, adult uh, capacity can sort of like come, come back to an extent. And that's another area where it would sort of be more team-based and, and group-based. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good point. I bring it up because when I think of amateur athletes and other sports, like I think ultimate Frisbee is an example of a sport that does a really good job fostering the team element for post-collegiate amateur athletes. Same thing yep. with like basketball and yeah, just sports like that. And I, I'm just, I've always been curious to know as the internet becomes more sophisticated, there are brands that start to care about this stuff like Tracksmith, what it would look like at a certain scale for runners to find a similar home, like in their mid twenties and thirties. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And, and I think you're seeing like the, the root of that idea with the rise of these sort of clubs and, and crews and, and teams for sure. There are a couple branding questions that I've always wanted to ask you because I feel like Tracksmith, sorry, Tracksmith is a masterclass in branding in a lot of ways. There is this trend, it seems like in more niche businesses, or at least while they're in their niche stage to take a very firm social stand in some way, or at least to demonstrate what they are and what they aren't in their rise. Uh, Patagonia comes to mind, even in the running space, like Wazelle comes to mind. I think Tracksmith has done this really well too. And I'm wondering if you think this is the go-to formula for success in the future, especially if you're a company that's trying to uh, appeal to a very specific audience. Uh, that's a, that's a really, um, I think the answer is actually no, but with a huge caveat, which mm. is I think that the reality is that people resonate and connect to things 
in in multiple ways. And so I think that there will always be room for uh, brands to have very clear points of view and 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 run and and execute a, a very strong business. But I also think there will always be room for generic mass for everybody type of brands that will also be successful. So I don't think it's necessary. And I, I don't have examples off sure. the top of my sure. head, but, but my guess is if you went back a hundred years looking at, you know, quote unquote, great brands, um, it's not that like, it's not that this is a new era, whether it's Patagonia or Wazell or, or Tracksmith. I think mm-hmm. these, this idea of having a really clear point of view of, uh, who you are, what you stand for, who you're serving has probably existed in, in, you know, forever, as long as there's been, been brands. Um, it's just maybe that now, you know, a brand like Patagonia obviously gets a lot of attention. Um, and so, so maybe, yeah, you know, young entrepreneurs are looking at that and being like, this is the way to do it. But the reality is also other ways to do it. So I think you will continue to see, you know, brands that, that have very strong points of view, but you also probably see a lot of success with brands that don't have a really strong point of view. Yeah. Because I've, and this is not necessarily a thought experiment that I believe, but I've always wondered if like I was a fly on the wall in like Adidas's boardroom, I would hear them say like, well, you know, our product isn't that different from Under Armour's when it comes down to the materials, but we can differentiate our position on the environment, for example, or the economy or, or some issue that people in their target persona care deeply about. And I've, I've always wondered if like that is like a decision that execs will make in those boardrooms. I'm, I, you know, again, I'm just totally riffing and speculating, but I've always been curious. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I do think that there is, uh, there is certainly uh in, in any competitive environment, a desire to differentiate um, and to be distinct, despite a lot of similarities and commonalities. And, and that really is why brands are, are what they are. That's, that's them coming to life um, behind values and ideals that they, that they hold. So those conversations are, are definitely happening. I think it's easier when you're obviously smaller and maybe start with those strong convictions than trying to sort of adjust and maneuver to, to where things are happening. And, and some brands are extremely good at that. And, and, and some, you know, maybe some are, are, are less so, but, but yeah, those, I, I, I also haven't been in the boardroom at Adidas, but my, my, my hunch tells me that those conversations are certainly happening. Yeah. Cool. Uh, moving on here. I am really curious about Tracksmith's athlete sponsorship strategy on a couple different planes. One, I read this statistic that the vast majority of athletes at the Olympic trials back in 2020 were kitted in Tracksmith, which is really cool. And if we can talk about that, that'd be awesome. But I'm also interested to learn more about some of the athletes you've brought on like Nick Willis and Mary Kane, uh, that are being treated. It seems like as full-time employees, which is really cool because I, I feel like that's not necessarily the norm with other brands. So there's a lot in there, but, uh, what do you, yeah. what's your, what's your take? I'll also, I mean, I can go back to, um, I guess sort of where it started with the Olympic marathon trial. So, um, back that was obviously seems like a, you know, a decade ago, February of 2020, um, in Atlanta. Um, so what, what, uh, where that kind of came from is again, our, you know, uh, being a brand that, um, 
isn't focused on sponsoring, um, uh, you know, quote unquote, the elite athletes in our sport um, and focused more on, you know, the, the, the sort of group that we talked about at the top of the podcast. Um, we had uh, employees, we had um, athletes that we've used in photo shoots. We had friends of the brand mm. um, who either had qualified for the Olympic trials in Atlanta or were hoping to qualify for the Olympic trials in Atlanta. And internally, we just sort of one day were like, what can we do to, to sort of support these athletes um, who, you know, none of, none of whom were, were getting uh, sponsorships or contracts from any of the other brands because they qu- didn't quite, even though they are Olympic trials qualifiers, they did not sort of get to that standard where they could um, get a, get a contract. And so, we started from that sort of perspective. And what happened was we, we created a program that, you know, if you had the standard, you could, you could join and you got sort of gear stipends. Um, we also partnered with uh, Linden times two um, Des Linden and Ryan Linden's coffee company mm. um, where you were also getting, um, you know, uh, and an annual quarterly uh, coffee deliveries as well. Um, and, and basically like very, you know, very, uh, very small level of support relative to what a professional athlete would get. But these were athletes who weren't receiving, you know, anything else. And so, um, that started again, like we were thinking we were going to support a dozen or two dozen, um, athletes through that program, but as word spread, but also as, um, you know, another fast marathon went by and more and more athletes qualified because as you, as you know, there were, you know, more qualifiers for this Olympic marathon trials than any, any previous, um, time in the past. So there were just a lot of athletes who were qualifying and most, almost all of them, a very small number had professional contracts and the rest didn't. And so it ended up that we had 138 athletes, I believe, um, in Atlanta, in the program, we made custom kits for them, um, you know, for race day and provided a hospitality suite. And so that was sort of, it was a very special moment for us. Um, it was far exceeded our expectations in terms of the impact of seeing all of those tracksmith kits, um, on the course and during the race. Um, but what we really learned from it was from the feedback from the athletes is that a lot of athletes had been training on their own. A lot of them have full-time jobs, you know, they're not professional, um, runners and it was sort of a feeling that they were part of a team again, which we talked about again earlier that they, a lot of them having competed in college, didn't have anymore. And so they felt part of a, of a team. Um, and so we then took that idea and extended that for the track and field trials in Eugene. And it was a similar thing. We sort of thought, you know, we're going to attract the 5k and the 10k athletes, um, you know, some of whom were already in the Olympic trials, marathon, Olympic marathon trials program. And sort of one thing led to another again. And suddenly we had hundred meter runners reaching out to us and throwers reaching out to us. And it was a very similar story where a lot of the athletes competing at that level um, don't have professional contracts. And so, you know, same fast forward to the track and field trials. And, you know, we had 30, we had over a hundred athletes in the program, 30 ish of whom uh, qualified for the Olympic trials in Eugene. And again, same thing. We had a, house there, hospitality, that they could hang out there, get massage, you know, Norma Tech boots, food, catered, catered meals every day. Um, and just sort of a very low key, but supportive vibe. And the same feedback 
sort of happened there of like, wow, I, you know, as a thrower, sort of doing my own thing, I haven't felt part of a team since college and, mm. and this has been great. And and you had, you know, a javelin thrower sitting next to a steeplechase on the couch having like a really interesting conversation and they otherwise their their paths would not have crossed um in our sport, you know, outside of the the college world. And so um so anyway, that it was really it was really unique and and special. So that was that was kind of our, you know, amateur support program. Um, Nick and Mary is a slightly different, um, you know, uh, approach where, you know, it's, it, it was kind of an, an idea I've, I've sort of had for a really long time, just around, you see so many athletes before Tracksmith, um, and even before my job, before Tracksmith at Puma, I, I worked with a lot of, um, athletes and, um, you know, a lot of athletes, in running, their careers aren't super long oftentimes, but, but you, you did have these cases of athletes sort of in their late twenties or early thirties and their running career ends and they really have no sort of, um, career experience yeah. and the money isn't good enough in running. Like maybe it is in the NBA or the NFL where you like, that doesn't matter because you're kind of okay. Um, and so you were behind, you were behind in the, in the job side of things. And, um, and then on the on the other hand, you also have a lot of athletes that don't thrive in an environment where 24 hours a day, the only thing they're told to think about is running. They right. need distraction. And so a lot of them have obviously have hobbies. A lot of them pick up part-time jobs or whatever the case may be. And so there's just that idea of like, you know, could you both support an athlete in their career trying to uh, achieve at the highest level athletically, but also provide an opportunity to, um, start to, you know, pick up, pick up job skills and be in a corporate environment. And so Nick and, and Mary, you know, I I don't think that model works for every athlete. I don't think that model probably works for every brand. And it's certainly not a model that can scale, you know, to a, to a high degree because you, you know, how many open jobs do you, do you have at a given time? Maybe a huge corporation could absorb, you know, a few dozen athletes. I mean, we, we couldn't do that. So it's not really a new sponsorship model per se, because our, our resources only allow to allow us to work with a small number of athletes. But in the case of Nick and Mary, it was uh, advantageous to both sides and it's been, it's been wonderful. Well, I mean, one thing, that I find fascinating about it is it go, you know, it goes beyond tying athlete value to race results. And so that's really cool. And it it, it brings up another thought in my mind, which is I know that social media gets a lot of flack, but that whole medium is an opportunity for athletes who don't necessarily want to be defined exclusively by their race results or are making plays to expand their value and capacity in the sport with that audience. So those two things are fascinating. I'm wondering if you've seen this replicated in other brands across the sport, or if you sort of see Tracksmith as trying to create a whole new model for athletes. Um, I mean, there's certainly been some very interesting and high profile, uh, you know, changes to the typical approach with obviously with Athleta, um, signing oh, Allison yeah. Felix, yeah. Simone Biles, you know, you, you, are seeing, um, a few things, um, happening, obviously Wazell as well has done, um, some things similar to this. Um, we, you know, again, our specific approach has been, um, 
very unique to, to our situation. It's, it's, it's something that works for us, but I'm not sure it necessarily would be replicated elsewhere and, and have the same you know effect. But I think what is clear is that people are, um, the, the status quo is changing. That I think is, is fair to say. Um, whether that's just how contracts are structured, where we saw a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of advocacy for uh, getting rid of reduction clauses. We saw athletes who, female athletes who were penalized for for having kids. And so mm. there's been a lot of sort of very positive developments on on that front where just the status quo has has changed. And then I think we're still at the very front edges of like, you know, what does that actually mean? I don't think anyone has the the actual answers, but I think you'll see a lot of experimentation over the next few years, not only in running, but probably in a lot of other, um, you know, non-major sports in terms of trying to, you know, understand um, how brands and athletes can can work more effectively together. Um, you, you brought up a really good point around, you know, social media and and someone's you know, quote unquote, influence um, versus their times. I do think on the flip side of all of this is uh, a wake up call to athletes that, you know, uh, fast time alone isn't really, isn't, does not necessarily equate to value to a brand, right? Um, Because like at the end of the day, you know, other than, you know, I don't know, winning, winning medals, uh, setting world records, you know, what, what is the difference between, you know, uh, a, a very good 10 K time, you know, and, and like by 10 seconds or 20, maybe 20 seconds faster. But I think, you know, the idea that, um, those athletes are, are selling, are selling product. Um, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of connect those things a lot of times. And so I think athletes are starting to also realize that, they may be able to find more value and, and actually, you know, present a better package to a brand if they um, do more than just run fast. Um, So. Well, this space absolutely fascinates me because when I think of, when I look at most endurance sports, including running and triathlon and skiing and yeah, just all the endurance sports, it's often the pros that are struggling financially to get by. And it's the amateurs that do this on the weekends, like the weekend warriors that are financially well off. And it's like the exact opposite in like basketball and baseball and hockey and, and football. So I'm curious to see, yeah, how this model gets better over time and how, you know, and, more, and yeah. Do, do you mean the amateurs do better um, because they, for whatever reason, like, I don't know, they have a, like, a popular YouTube channel. They have a, you know, or, or do you mean they do better because they have a career? They have like a full-time career. Yeah. I meant it more from a career standpoint. Like, you know, they're yeah, an amateur okay. who like, you know, is like a financial analyst at Goldman Sachs and on the weekends trains for half marathons or, you know, yep. that, yep. that kind of yep. model. Um, and then yep. the people that go all in are just, they're, they're penalized financially for going all in because there's just not that much money to go around and, or brands just haven't made it a focal point of their budget yet. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at, I guess, too, is like, you know, supply and demand is, is, you know, it's, it is a reality. And, um, just because you run fast doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be demand for that. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, the sport specifically running has a, has a problem in creating value for itself that would, 
allow fast times to be valued more greatly, right? It's like, um, you know, the, the NBA can, can pay athlete salaries, what they, what they pay because they're, they're, they've created a great deal of value, whether that's through, you know, ticket sales, Jersey sales, you know, whatever the case may be, they just, their economics are, uh, are much different. So, you know, running, it's not, it's not, you know, the athlete's fault per se, but it's the sport's fault as a whole that it just hasn't been able to uh, generate more interest and therefore economic activity. I've always wondered, like, what is from like a business standpoint, like marketing standpoint, what is the position that we hire for at the highest levels of running, like in the governing bodies to basically be held accountable to that and making the sport more marketable, making, creating more demand for athletes, stuff like that. I've always, I mean, I'm not really sure where I'm going with that. That's more of a comment than a question, but yeah, just brings that to mind. Yeah, it definitely does. And there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of people talk about this uh, a lot. Um, I think one of the, you know, one of the challenges is that it, it is a governing body um, and it is an Olympic sport that only uh, has sort of global relevance once every four years. You know, if you truly, truly, truly wanted to change that, um, you know, I don't know, it may, maybe, yeah, maybe with great people, you could do that. Um, but I also wonder if it, it just needs to happen outside of that structure. You know, why, why do we need to, to necessarily follow, uh, you know, the, the, all of the sort of like rules and regulations that, that a national governing body sort of, uh, commands versus just creating something from, from scratch, um, that didn't necessarily have to, have to follow the same, uh, this be, be constrained by the same boundaries. Mm. Okay. So I put this next question out on Strava a couple of weeks ago. I asked some of my followers, are there any companies that come to mind that are like Tracksmith in the trail running, uh, world? And a couple of people mentioned rabbit. Um, another one was like territory run co. I'm wondering if Tracksmith has any specific plans to enter into the sport of trail running with their clothing lines, what that might look like. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we already, I mean, we, we have, we actually just launched this season's um, off-roads collection, um, which is uh, apparel and a few accessories, um, you know, specific to, uh, to trail. Um uh, I, there's like we we have maybe like a, a a very nuanced but but philosophical um difference in how we think about that question which is that we don't see it as so binary or black and white like trail versus road versus mm. track i think the reality for a lot of runners is that they enjoy and and do a mixture of those things now if you happen to live in an, you know, an ideal setting with, you know, miles and miles of trails out your back door, then yeah, you may be running exclusively on, on trails. And then, and then you can get into all levels of sort of technicality of those trails. But I think for a lot of runners, you know, the it's, it's a mix. And so, you know, even like Nick Willis, who is, uh, you know, uh, broken four minutes in the mile, 19 consecutive years, he does, 80% of his running on single track, single track trails, um, because that's what's near where he lives. Um, he enjoys, you know, not having 
the sort of same, uh, you know, monotony of, of the roads. He enjoys the softer surfaces. And so for us, it's like less thinking about like trail as a separate business. There are certain requirements, obviously, that are unique to um, to that experience. And so it's it's a little bit less for us, like, are we doing trail or not? And mm. it's more like, for example, this off-roads collection, you know, that we, we actually launched last year um, and then just sort of launched a, a second version of it um, just recently. Um, you know, it is designed for, for trail. Um, but, but in a, but in a context, it's like maybe a little um, like, yeah, I, I'd be curious because this is your, this is your world. You know, do you view, are, are you a trail purist where it's like, you know, super technical, you know, in the Alps or, you know, or whatever the case may be, or is it more, uh, you know, that it's, that it's more, uh, just about being off the roads and being in nature and, and sort of being away from the distractions of our, our normal environments. That is a fantastic question. And I think the answer that I have for you right now, and I should preface this by saying I'm coming to you from Salt Lake city, Utah, which is like, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's, it is it is one of the trail running meccas, but I've oh, yep. I've been exploring this question of like sort of this West Coast Mountain West versus East Coast trail running divide because there really is this significant divide where most people out here in the West are almost exclusively trail runners, and I think a lot of it has to do with access and that instant inspiration. Whereas I think yep. a lot of runners on the East Coast are more bound to the seasons and maybe they can go to the white mountains in New Hampshire in July, but it's more difficult to do that in like December and they're training for Boston and stuff like that. So I've always thought it could be an issue of geography, but it's a great question because yeah, I was just going to ask you if you think that there are like significant differences between the quote unquote dedicated amateur trail runner and the dedicated amateur road runner. Um, yeah. So it's a good question. And I think uh, when I'm listening back to this episode again, I'm going to be thinking about it more. Uh, yeah. 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 There's definitely, there definitely is, uh, some delineation. And I think there are certain people who, again, maybe because of like access or just desire, you know, view themselves solely as, as trail runners. Um, you know, there's, there's probably also people who view themselves as, as road runners, um, but mainly only because most of the races that, that they're exposed to are, are happening on roads. But if you actually looked at their training, you know, almost everyone prefers soft surfaces. Almost everyone prefers a beautiful trail. It just may be harder to, to access that depending on where, where you live. Um, and maybe part of this is just my particular and individual experience with the sport growing up where I did a lot of my training, uh, in a, in a location that was unique in that it had a paved loop around a lake that was as sort of, you know, road running esque as you can get, but also had surrounding it very beautiful single track and wider dirt road trails. And so I, I like, I always ran on roads and trails and, and the trails were dirt roads, but they were also single track, you know, super steep, technical, rocky sections. So I kind of, had exposure to all of those growing up. I have less of that now. Most of my quote unquote trail running is on, you know, I'd say like dirt paths, um, you know, uh, around where I, where I live versus, you know, 
up in the White Mountains, which is also lovelier. You know, we we go a lot up to you know in Vermont and Maine, and it's it's amazing to run on on those trails. But I just don't have that ability to do it every day. So, mm, mm, okay, cool. I should announce my bias in this next question. So I think the growth of our <laughs> I, th- I think that the growth of our sport is good. I'm I'm definitely in the camp of uh, growth is good. I think our society is better off if more people are exposed to running and it's part of their daily practice. Uh, I guess the question here is two parts. A, do you agree? And B, um, is there anything from the Tracksmith playbook that you think would be well utilized if we were trying to grow this sport on a bigger scale, like making it more appealing to a, a general audience? So are you talking about running as a whole or trail running specifically? Ooh, well, I think running as a whole, I think, I think running as a whole can be a gateway to trail running. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think that's right. Um, so, so hundred percent, yes, growth is, uh, is, is good. You would have to be a curmudgeon to not want more people participating in, in this sport. Um, now, now maybe you, you, you know, like, I don't know, it's like, Maybe if you have some lovely secluded trail and you don't want a bunch of people running on that, I may, maybe. But I think in general, yes, like uh, growth is 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 good. And and going back to that question of you know like how do you have more demand in order for athletes to be able to earn a living? Who are the best at this activity? Well, we need more people who care about it. Um, so growing it is yes is is necessary. Um, the playbook question around like what what can we learn? I mean, we I mean we uh, I mean I say it's not necessarily the tracksmith playbook. I'll tell you what I think needs to happen, um, and it's not necessarily specific to tracksmith, yes, which sir. is the in order for uh, running to be uh, perceived differently by a lot more people. I think that the presentation of it needs to change pretty drastically. And what I mean by that is, you know, or I'll use an analogy. I don't know if you have followed um, Formula One at all. Um, It is, you know, predominantly and like not very, has historically not been very popular in in the U.S., um, but very, very popular in the rest of the world. And Netflix and Formula One created a documentary called, or docuseries called Drive to Survive, um, and the popularity in the U.S. has just absolutely skyrocketed. And um, there was a race actually this past weekend in Austin, Texas, um, and they they had you know the highest three-day attendance um, ever in in F1. So this is like a truly global sport uh, with fanatics in other parts of the world, and and the U.S., which has has not been a, a huge uh, sort of fan base for F1, actually set the the uh, largest attendance record over over three day period because they have like qualifying and practice and then race day. Um, so it's just interesting. It's it's a really um, I'm really intrigued that um, I'm assuming a very similar conversation happened there of like the U.S. is this huge market. How do we do it? Well, how we present the sport today isn't appealing to that audience. So how can we present it in a way that would be appealing to that audience? And and using obviously a, a mass media. Uh, platform like Netflix and, uh, you know, docu-series, which is obviously like, you know, they, they hit a few, um, hit on a few like core things that, that work. And sure enough, that, that has um, increased the popularity tremendously in this, in this particular market. So, so that's kind of like, 
you know, I, I could make some analogies where certainly Tracksmith uh, cares deeply about how we present running and, mm. and we take great care in our photography and our films and our writing. Um, so that's like maybe part of that playbook, but, um, but it's sort of a different, you know, uh, equation to say, how do you, you know, make a lot more people interested in the sport and beyond just participation. I think growth and participation is fantastic, but really what we're talking about is growth in interest or fandom, um, which we, which running has done a, a, a pretty poor job of. I would, I would say it hasn't improved in the last 10 years, 20 years, and, and maybe has gone backwards because, you know, in the eighties and nineties, track and field athletes would be, you know, on, and, and road racing would be on the cover of sports illustrated. It would be on ESPN. It would, you know, it would, it would be in our sort of general, although small, you know, major sports, uh, media landscape and and now it's completely vanished from from that landscape outside of it of of an olympic year Mm. well okay one comment one question first you are the second person to reference that formula one docuseries i had (laughs) uh mark gainey from strava on the podcast a couple weeks ago and he mentioned that that docuseries had an incredible impact on him so that was the final nudge I needed. I'm going to go watch it. There, you uh, need to watch it. It's, <laughs> I, I never, I never, I mean, I never watched a formula one race. I I've never had an interest in race cars. Uh, and, and I, and I'm hooked. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very compelling, um, it's a very compelling proposition. If you watch season one, I, I think you would very quickly watch seasons two and three. <laughs> are, are there any specific ideas it's given you or any like things that we can transfer from that sport over to running? I mean, storytelling, right? I mean, the, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you mentioned masterclass. It's just a masterclass and like storytelling, pulling someone in. It's the best example I've seen of a, of a sport not dumbing down uh, the way it's presented and, mm. and talked about, but in a way that can bring in someone who knows absolutely nothing about the sport other than like the first car across the line wins. There's so many analogies to running where we all cringe when we watch a broadcast and, you know, go, go down to your local track and run, you know, that's running around this track, you know, 200 yeah. times at this pace. And it's like, you know, it's very, uh, it's like, it's a playbook that has been rolled out and, and, and that's starting to shift and change a little bit, but, um, you know, it's the same, you know, if you watch, if you, if you flip on a, if you're, if you're from Europe and you come to the U S and put a American football game on, you know, they're not going to cater to you as a, as a newbie, but the way that is presented is compelling enough that a lot of people, a lot of general sports fans will get sucked into that because Mm. if presented the right way and there's great storylines and there's heroes and villains, you know, that's, it's just sort of textbook storytelling that can, that can pull people in. Well, that whole not dumbing down thread so deeply resonates with me. And I think with a lot of ultra runners in particular, because we are constantly having to sort of be self-deprecating about what we do when we're introducing ourselves to people that aren't in the sport. Like we have to say that we're crazy and that we're dumb and we have weird tastes and that just resonated well. Like, I think that, no, we shouldn't dumb this down. Like if you're ready to come and check us out, great, but we're not going to change who we are and, and, uh, kind of I'm losing, uh, I don't have the word for it right now, but yeah, just, we, we shouldn't be afraid to be ourselves. Yeah. And, and I think like, 
as someone who has, uh, you know, never, never run beyond marathon distance. And, and you may, I'd actually be curious your take on this, if you sort of cringe at this thought and it's not a, it's not a totally formed thought. So I'm going to say it and, and, and probably retract it, probably retract it afterwards. But I'm thinking of the analogy of like formula one and how do you sort of package something in a way, I feel like the FKT is something that if you go over the spectrum of like ultra runners down to sort of marathoners and then to like shorter half and and 5Ks and 10Ks and and road and track, the FKT is like a concept that I think a lot of people can wrap their head around. And I think the sort of most epic versions of those are usually very uh, challenging and usually distances over, you know, the marathon distance. So there's, although there's certainly like shorter ones and maybe like, maybe that is a, a, a lens into which, um, ultra can be exposed to a wider audience without, um, without sort of dumbing it down. And in fact, almost like heroizing it in this, in this concept, but I don't know, that was a half-baked thought, but I think that from an awareness and growth standpoint, that might be the best strategy I've heard yet for how to make our sport more palatable. That's fantastic. And are you familiar with uh, a guy named Buzz Burrell? He runs fastestknowntime.com. I, I, I have heard his name and I've been yeah. to that website. I didn't realize that he was connected to that, but, he, but yeah. He's, he's the guy behind it. And then also he's the founder of Ultimate Direction, which is like one of the gear brands in our, oh, yeah. in our sport. Yep. Um, yep. He'd be yep. a great guy to talk to on this stuff, but that is a fantastic idea. I love that angle for introducing the sport to a wider audience. Cause I think it's much yeah. more, yeah. Fastest known time. is just, it's just a great phrase. It instantly creates understandable associations, in people's heads, as opposed to like, you know, running a hundred miles from, you know, Auburn or, you know, Squaw Valley to Auburn, California for Western States. No, I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. A couple more questions here before the lightning round. Uh, I kind of want to talk about entrepreneurship because there are a lot of people who are interested in kind of creating their own thing in the running space. The first thing I want to touch on here is a little bit philosophical. So it seems like you're an absolute nat- uh, natural at like really catering to a very specific, specific persona. But I think that the instinct for most people is to cast this wide net and to try to be all things to all people. And I'm wondering why you think that tends to be the case for most people. And then I'm wondering conversely, what advice you have for helping people narrow their vision and to find like a, a real niche to get into, to start with. Ah, oh, man, that's a, that's a really, that's a, that's a very interesting question that I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer to that wouldn't like uh, be based on a lot of assumptions. Um, I think that, so I'll speak for my myself first. Um, I I guess I just as a as a, as a participant and a consumer and someone that worked in the in the category in running, mm. you know, for a very long time. I mean, I started running when I was in high school, and you know, still do this day. I'm I'm in my 40s. You know, it's, it's a long time. I've I've worked. Um, you know, in, in the, in the industry, um, at several brands and doing some things more entrepreneurial. And I'm a, I'm a consumer. I've bought a lot of the products. I've, I've, you know, gone to a lot of the events. I consume the media. So I think I just personally had a very, very clear idea of what I wanted to create and, and what I felt was 
missing and, and where I felt an opportunity was. And I guess I combined that with, um, uh, like I, I just kind of, I guess I, I was exposed as a kid to like, uh, a high level of like craftsmanship. My, my mom and my Mm. dad and my brother are all sort of, um, very entrepreneurial. And, um, my, my brother, for example, is an incredible woodworker Mm. and just the idea of like being really, really good at, at one thing, you know, and, and, um, so that's kind of, I just, I just kind of guess I grew up around that. And, and so that probably formed my perceptions of like, you know, being a great brand. I mean, there was also, you know, I don't know, like I grew up in the, I was an Apple fanboy before, you know, most people had, had phones or, or iPods and like seeing a brand like that, where they were just so, so specific in the early days and sort of like what they were doing and who they were for. So I think that was just like, that's just what I wanted to do. I mean, it was just a personal preference to create uh, a brand that had a, a sharp point of view. Um, why people go wider is probably like a, a couple different factors. I think there's certainly, if you're thinking about um, the pressure of uh, a growing business, you know, like you always think I need more customers and that can very quickly sort of spiral to like, we have to be everything to everyone. And I think a lot of times when that happens, brands don't become that interesting. Um, and so, but there is that pressure. Um, I also think people probably have a natural tendency, most of us to uh, not to, to like want everyone to like us. It's going to mm. get like super like psychological, oh, but like we, as, go we as humans have, we as humans have a tendency to like want everyone to like us. And you know, it is when I hear criticism of Tracksmith, it still affects me personally. I like, I hate to, I hate to read it or hear it or see it. Um, but I'm also like, I know this is part of what we're doing. This is, there are going to be people who uh, don't connect with what we're doing and that has to be okay because I want to create something that has meaning and, and value to, to people. And so I think that's probably like, some of the reasons maybe why people are, are, are go, go wider um, rather than more focused, but. I freaking love that craftsmanship angle. I, I think that yeah, to bring an in evolution into this too, I think from an evolutionary point of view, we are evolved to be generalists, but we can afford to be specialists now. And we just haven't kind of caught yeah. on at that neural level. So uh, people like you are just the first movers in this space. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> a good way to think about it. But uh, okay, next question here. Can you talk about any specific work experiences in the lead up to Tracksmith that were valuable to this kind of entrepreneurial journey that made you feel confident to make that jump? Oh man, it's such a winding road. Um, I would say it was like a, uh, I mean, a combination. I had a lot of, um, I would call them failures um, in my in my career. I was really uh, confused for a long time, like what I, what I was meant to be doing with my life. I, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of people leave college and they have a really clear idea what they want to do with their lives. I was the opposite. I was one of those people that really had no clue. Um, I, I, I started a company a year or two after college with some friends that never really, um, got anywhere, not in the sports space at all. Um, and so like, actually, you know, it's, it's so cliche, but you do learn a lot from, from failing. And what I learned with that failure is that I had, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to run a business. I had no idea 
how to build a brand. And so I, you know, continued searching for those things. Um, I did a lot of odd jobs in my, in my life that, um, you know, like during that time when I was trying to start that business, I was, I was working at Home Depot in the garden center and at Crate and Barrel in the stock room. I mean, I was like cobbling things together, um, trying to like figure that out. Um, so I would say that for me, there was a, the, the two biggest things were like, uh, the, the sort of like failures and, and the journey to sort of really hone in on what I wanted to do combined that then on the opposite side of that, some things that were successful and, uh, and, and were able to sort of guide me and teach me. I, I did a few very entrepreneurial projects around storytelling specifically with, mm. um, in, in running. So I, I did one that focused on, uh, collegiate cross country runners. I did one focused on, uh, some of the best Kenyan marathoners in the world. And I, I did one for, um, uh, the, the Olympic marathon trials actually in 2008 when they were in central park or 07. Um, and so I, you know, and then I, I also worked at Puma before tracksmith. So I, I had like this nice yin and yang of like really, uh, you know, positive experiences that I learned from. And then I had a lot of like, really like, you know, failures and just sort of like low moments in life where, those also helped guide me. And, and so I think it was like the combination of those things that set me on the path, I guess. Mm. Last question in this sort of entrepreneurial round before we go to the final lightning round here. Uh, this one's fun. And I, I like to ask it because I like to get the audience excited by all of the opportunities out there for the taking in the running space. Given that you are fully committed to Tracksmith, are there any other coaching, media, e-commerce, or tech-related businesses you would like to see some fellow runners start? Ah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and I, I am fully committed to Tracksmith, but, you know, the scope and vision of Tracksmith could include some of those things down the road. Um, no, I would... Some acquisitions uh, in the future. On, uh, yeah. Um, I would, I mean, uh, betting, uh, betting on track and field and on, on road racing. Ooh, um, ooh, yes. I, I am a, I am a big, uh, uh, believer in, in that that could be one piece of the puzzle to generate uh, more general interest. Um, so I, I think, yeah, I think, I think that could be, uh, that could be really interesting. I love that. Um, and then I think just in the event space really is like, to me, like the, the most white space exists there. Um, you know, there are a handful of, uh, you know, large and historic events that sort of dictate our, our calendar as, as runners. But I think there's been so much and really COVID maybe accelerated the experimentation and creativity around events. But, um, you know, I don't know if there'll be like, you know, what is the equivalent of rock and roll uh, marathon series, but, but for like a, a modern, a modern audience, you know, um, and, and, and it could be a, a combination of things. I actually think that would be most interesting is where there was, you know, different disciplines, uh, surfaces, you know, it could be a series of races, but I think the event space is really interesting. Mm. I love that. And yeah, just to come back to the betting for a second, someone can go build like a, like a fan duel or DraftKings for, uh, for running. That'd be cool. Yeah. And I don't even know, maybe you don't even like, it may not be that you need to build 
that component, maybe you can utilize the tools that already exist, but someone needs to create like, I don't know, like the sports book or needs to create the, the brand that, uh, you know, that, that basically does that, but you may be able to leverage this technology. Cause I think, you know, I think a lot of those platforms, you can bet on a lot of different sports and activities. It's more just a question of somebody actually creating, you know, creating the, the odds, creating the, the, like the ecosystem for it. I'll throw one out there myself. I've, I've, I've contemplated building this myself, but uh, I think it's for the good of the community that at least someone does it. Cause I've been lazy. I think that some sort of job board for the uh, running industry, like pe- people that are runners that also want to work in the mm-hmm. industry. I can't think of really many outlets that they can go to, to find running specific jobs. It's um, so interesting. And it's really popular in like the tech world. I'm, I'm a marketer at a software company and it's incredibly easy for me to go to like five different B2B marketer software job boards to find what I need. That's really targeted. Yeah. I think that that could exist in the running world, in the endurance sports world. It's a great play from so many different angles. Um, someone should go build it. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um Cause there are a lot of like industry newsletters that have picked up relatively large audiences. Right. And sometimes you see that in like some of the bigger newsletters and maybe like job postings, but it's interesting that that doesn't exist in the endurance world. Yeah. So we got the lightning round here. These questions are almost purely philosophical because that's what I love to end with. The first one here, are there any books, podcast episodes, TV shows, or movies, or I guess songs as well that you've come across recently that have fundamentally changed the way that you work, live, or generally see the world? I'm going to say Drive to Survive, this F1 documentary. Um, um, it's, you definitely need to watch it. Um, it has, I would say, change the way I, um, not necessarily like work, live or see the world, but definitely change the way I, um, view the opportunity for, for running. I think it's given me an example, whereas previously I always struggled thinking about what the example is, like what's, what's like, you never were like, nothing is ever like, you can't just copy what, what someone else does, but you can sort of, you know, take those things, apply them to your unique situation and, and, you know, use them as a bit of a guide. So that one to me is, is, has been really interesting. And I like a week doesn't go by that. I don't reference it or think about it or, or, uh, or, or watch a race on a weekend. So I just, uh, I'm going to restart my Netflix account after this. So I can go watch <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, you'll, you can probably do like back. a one week trial and you can probably do a one week trial and watch the whole thing and you'll, you'll binge watch it. Believe me. Uh, next question. Name one thing that your work as an entrepreneur has taught you that you think has widespread applicability that anybody in any walk of life should know and apply. Uh, I mean, I always come back to the idea of delayed gratification. I think like starting a business and running have so many similarities in the way you progress. Like you can't just on day one, you know, be your best. There's sort of a long journey and there's ups and downs. And I think, you know, we, especially in a, in a, in a time when so many things have gone to instant gratification, you know, we, we scroll, we just read headlines, like our, our brains are being rewired it's, and it's, and it's really frustrating, but it's also inevitable. Um, but I think that, you know, if you, if you can, 
think longer term and be okay with, um, you know, short term, uh, either lack of progress or disappointment, but knowing and being confident that down the road, um, you know, the, the, the outcome will be, will be greater. The experience will be more enriched or whatever the case may be. Um, I, I still, that's something that I, I try to think about in my personal and, and career. I think one of the biggest takeaways I have from this conversation is that entrepreneurship is both so fundamental to our nature with the freedom component, but it's also against our nature and that we have to delay gratification. And a lot of the ROI comes so far down the road and we're used to like just instant gratification and short feedback loops and all that stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last question here. Uh, it's a two-parter. What do you want to be doing 10 years from now? Or what has Tracksmith evolved into 10 years from now? Um, I guess I'll take the second one because I'm, I hope that I'm still, uh, I, I'm still running Tracksmith. Um, I mean, uh, like the vision for Tracksmith is, is quite ambitious. Um, but I also know that it will take a long time to fully realize that. Um, so I, you know, 10 years from now, it's 2021, so wow, 2031. So we'd be past the, uh, we passed Paris, we'll be past LA Olympics and we'll be heading into Melbourne Olympics. I, I always think about things on the like four year Olympic, uh, cycle. It's just kind of the way my, my running brain is wired. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I hope that I would hope that Tracksmith is, uh, not very different from what you see today, but has a much bigger footprint for it. So I, I would hope that we don't veer from, you know, uh, producing the highest quality product. I hope we don't veer from creating the, the, the best film, the best photography, the best written stories in the sport of running. I hope we don't veer away from creating uh, amazing experiences in person, whether that's through an event or at a, at a pop-up or an event, you know, but I, but I would hope that we, um, there's just more opportunities for people to, to, um, see and experience and, um, and, and, and feel those things, um, you know, through, uh, yeah, bigger audience, uh, bigger footprint, uh, you know, and, and all of those things. So I, so I would just hope that, yeah, the, the brand is way more established, uh, has a much stronger global presence, but really the the kernel of it still feels like it does today. And I know that that things will evolve, and they have over these past seven years. But um, in another ten years, I hope that the evolution would would be similar to these first seven, where it's evolved in a way that has kept true to the original intent and, and vision, but um, has allowed us to reach more more people. Mm. Well, I. First off, thank you. I uh, really appreciate you sure. coming on the show. Uh, I am human. I am vulnerable to recency bias, but I think this has been a top three running conversation for me. I love your takes on this. <laughs> thank you. Me a I ton really of ideas. Um, before we go, where can people find you? Like, are you on social media? Where can people find Tracksmith and uh, plug any campaigns that they might be interested in? Um, so Tracksmith, I mean, we are predominantly an online business, tracksmith.com and the social media channels, obviously. And we have one store, uh, in Boston on Newberry street. Um, that's also our headquarters. So our office and, and store and sort of community space are all together there. Um, depending on when this gets, uh, aired, we will have a pop-up at the New York city marathon, 
um, at 1928 Broadway, right near Central Park, um, near Columbus Circle. So really excited about that. I personally am not on social media, um, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I love talking to, to, to people and hearing from people. So um, Matt at tracksmith.com is, uh, is, is, the, is the, the most direct way to reach me. Very cool. Well, I think the audience is going to love this one. Thanks again. And uh, hopefully we'll talk soon in the future. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Boom. That was a fun one. A lot of takeaways for me. I'll uh, make two here. A, I have always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Maybe you have too. I think that this conversation just validated that. Um, B, differentiation and focus. We heard it in the inch wide, mile deep philosophy presented by Mark Ganey a couple episodes ago. I think that theme was here again. Uh, It's okay to be exclusive. I would argue, and I think that Tracksmith is a great example, that you are doing a service to the world when you build something to accommodate a very specific audience. I really admire the brands that do this. And I just think it makes the world a more rich, a more colorful a more diverse place when you uh, roll out that kind of playbook. Uh, What else? We have entertained this conversation thread across many episodes about how to make the sport better, uh, more marketable, and to just grow it and to reach a general audience. And I'm starting to realize that storytelling is a big part of the equation. We got to tell better stories and we have to be our authentic selves in the process. I'm really excited to watch this Drive to Survive uh, docu-series, I think it is, on Netflix about the Formula One racing. It's been recommended now by two guests. It was Matt and then Mark from Strava. And I think there's a good playbook to borrow from on that front. Storytelling. Uh, What else do we got here? Housekeeping. The newsletter is live. It went out with the Mario Fraioli podcast episode last Sunday night. What'd you think? Looking for feedback, um, good and bad. I just want to make it better. Um, I do have to set up better landing pages for that and a new website rebuild is coming soon. So stay tuned. But for now, just go to my personal website, which is finnmelanson.com. That's F-I-N-N-M-E-L-A-N-S-O-N.com. There's a box right there on the homepage. Input your email address and you're going to get the newsletter every Sunday night from there. Um, other notes. Yeah. So the website is getting a rebuild. Uh, there's going to be show notes to every page. I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in the value of show notes. It's a great place to have links to all the things that we mentioned in a previous episode. Um, if you want to track down specific conversation threads or quotes, it's all going to be there. It's going to be easy to navigate. It's going to be scannable. It's going to be helpful. Those are coming. Uh, they'll also be in all of your podcast players as well. Uh, Same thing with YouTube. We're going to make sure that each of these episodes is out on YouTube as well. We want to make sure that you can find this in every platform possible. I am also going to get more active on Twitter. I actually think that Twitter is the best social media platform out there. I think that if you curate Twitter well, it is fantastic. And I'm actually surprised that more people in the running community haven't taken to it. I feel like right now, Instagram might be the default, but I come from the tech world and Twitter is a huge huge, huge resource just for learning and making connections. So we're going to be active there. Uh, 
overall the theme is slow and steady progress, but it's all building. And at uh, a very um, soon point in the future, we will be ubiquitous AF. So stay tuned. Be back next Sunday night. Peace.